Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here today. And good that everyone survived the church camp out in that wonderful October weather. Supposed to be good. It did change on us and got very cold and very wet, but we all survived. There was no place like home once we got home. Uh, if you could, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 8. Well, today we'll be on verses 48 through 59. And we'll just pick up where we left off last week, or two weeks ago when we were here, uh, the church camp out. We kind of did like a one-off sermon uh, so everyone could stay on par and stay on track with us as we're going through John. So we're picking up right where we left off two weeks ago. Uh, and just to quickly review, uh, John chapter 8, verse 37 through 47 is what we were on two weeks ago. And Jesus has been exposing the Pharisees from John chapter 7. John chapter 8 is one unit, one big visit there to the temple. Uh, he's been exposing the Pharisees' heart, desires, and their actions uh, to kind of do what we were calling a paternity test to see who their true father is. Of course, they claim that Abraham is their father, and that is repeated throughout the Gospels, their claim to be uh, connected to Abraham, and they claim that God is their father, and Jesus kind of puts them to a paternity test. We covered that in those verses 37 through 47 two weeks ago, and just a few points there. Number one, uh, they are not connected to Abraham. They're not connected to God. Why? Because they reject the word of God. If a person rejects the word of God and still claims to be a person of God, that person is an absolute liar, all right? And uh, that is who they are. Uh, they reject the word of God, even though genetically they are connected to Abraham. They are not children of Abraham by faith, just genetics, and that doesn't do a lot. Number two, they do not uh, do the works that Abraham did. So their, their lifestyle, there's no change in it. They are still doing the works that an unbeliever would do. Number three... They do the works of another father, which is not God the Father. As we find out, it is actually Satan. Their life, their, their walk, uh, their lifestyle is not reflective of God, but it's reflective of Satan. Uh, number four, they do not love Jesus, uh, yet they claim to be of Abraham and claim to be of God. But if you reject the Son, you reject the Father also. Number five, they cannot bear to hear Christ's message. So when Christ speaks, speaks, they cannot bear to hear the message that he speaks. And it is, he is God in the flesh. And so if you can't stand Christ's message, then odds are you're not God's people, right? In number six, we saw that their desire and will was actually to serve Satan, Jesus said, not God. So based on that paternity test that Jesus gives them, are they children of Abraham, children of God or not? And the answer is not, all right, obviously there. So the conclusion of the paternity test is that they have another father, a different father, and Jesus says that their father is the devil. So this is a huge, huge eye-opener. This should be an eye-opener for them, but think about it. They are in charge of the temple. They are in charge of the Jewish religion. They are the teachers. They are the scribes. They are the ones who are disseminating information out to the people. They represent God. They look different. They act different. Their clothing is different. They're judging everyone that's in violation, supposedly, of God's rules. And yet, Jesus says they're not representing God. They're representing Satan. So, this is clear and to the point. And we'll see to, in today's passage, Jesus is very clear and to the point on who he is as well. Look with me at uh, verses 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, we are, not, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died? My glory, um, uh, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. 
If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do not. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we've been able to gather together safely today to focus on you, to worship, worship you, and to consider you and to consider ourselves, Lord, and you're, that you are indeed holy and that we are sinful. But you've sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins to make us right with you. Help us to never uh, resort back to the Pharisees were doing who depended on their works. And it depended on someone else's faith, uh, their fathers instead of their own, to be right with you. Help us to see, God, that we must have faith in Christ for our salvation. And that Jesus truly accomplishes all things needful for our salvation. So that we rest in him fully for our assurance of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so chapter 7 and chapter 8 has been one long encounter between the Pharisees and between Jesus. And as we've covered multiple times, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three required mandatory by the law of God feasts for Israel to come back to the temple and participate in. And we, we've looked over at Nehemiah chapter 8 and chapter 9 where Ezra goes into the details about the Feast of the Tabernacles. And from that we get a lot of information that they would review uh, the great exodus out of Egypt when God redeeming them and all the great events that happened along the way. And so during that, there, during the daily uh, Feast of the Tabernacles, there would be uh, a water pouring uh, event that would signify the water coming out of the rock where God provided for Israel. There would also be this nightly light show, you might say, uh, with these, these big bronze uh, containers that would go, be lifted up high, high above the temple with light in them that represented God directing them by light at night. And so all these things are pointing to those events in the past, in the past, right? And then Jesus shows up during the Feast of Tabernacles, who himself is the tabernacle. He is the dwelling place of God. He is God incarnate. And he shows up saying, look, I am the one who provided the water. I am the one. Look to me. I am the one that will cause living fountains of water to come from within you. Look to me. I am the light, right? So he takes those types. He takes those shadows of the Old Testament and reveals himself to be the ultimate substance of them. So he encouraged them to quit just looking back, right? You learn from the past. You learn from the Old Covenant. You learn from the Old Testament. You learn from these things, but they're prophetic. They're pointing forward, and he is the fulfillment of them. But instead of seeing him as the fulfillment, the Pharisees want to live in the past, and they're going to reject the Messiah. But Jesus and, he, and the Pharisees are constantly going back and forth on all of this. How do the Pharisees take Jesus' teaching? Look at verse 48, and we see it. Even though Jesus has told them he is the fulfillment of these things, uh, unless they believe he is who he says he is, they're going to die in their sins. Over and over he has said these. How do, they, how do they respond? Verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So they resort to calling names. And you'll get this a lot when you're a Christian even today. Uh, people do not want to deal with your, um, your knowledge and, and Christianity on a logical level. Oftentimes, they will just call you names, right? And uh, this is what happens to Jesus. They do not deal with his argumentation in a logical manner. They just think of the worst things they could possibly call him. Number one, being a Samaritan. Now, today, it's a little different. If someone is really letting someone have it and calling them names and every name in the book, even though they may exhaust their list they have in their mind, they may never come to the name Samaritan, right? Uh, you just don't hear that that often, like, oh, you dirty, rotten Samaritan. You know, it's not that you don't hear that anymore. But in that day, in that time, this was the worst possible name, worst possible thing that the, the Jews, the Pharisees could possibly call someone was a Samaritan. 
So to, to remember what all happened where, to, to get back to the Samaritan route, um, uh, you have the Assyrians who come down and take the ten tribes of, of the Israel captive, right? Uh, Israel had stopped obeying God. They were worshiping other gods. God punished them and brought in the Assyrians to take them away. The Assyrians only left the worst of the worst Israelites there. They did not want a hand-me-out society where they're having to provide for uh, the weakest ones. And so they left kind of the worst of the worst, the lowest of the classes there in the land. So there weren't many of them, but they left them there. Years later, they repopulate that with the Syrians and people from other nations. So that instead of those people that were living in that area uh, called Samaria, now it becomes a mixed breed and also a mixed religion where they, the Jews, the true Jews, no longer consider them Jewish. They are Samaritan, genetically mixed. They intermarried people from other nations, which God had told them not to do, because they would be taken away by their religions. And that's exactly what ended up happening to those Samaritans. They do have some Jewish, Israelite blood in them, but they're mixed, and also they've mixed the religion. So in the end, we find that the Samaritans have their own place of worship, uh, they create their own mountain. They create their own priesthood. They uh, create their own religion. They do away with much of the word of God and only keep the first five books of the Bible. So, so they take away all the prophets and just keep the first five. And in the end, they've, they've, they've twisted everything around to where it's not the actual religion that God prescribed through the first five books, though. So this is what they're calling him. They're calling him a Samaritan. So what do they mean when they're doing this? They're meaning when they say, Jesus, you are a Samaritan, they're saying, number one, that he's not a true Israelite, that he is, he is way less than. He is not a true Israelite and uh, that he cannot be the Messiah. Also, he, they're saying that he is a false teacher. The Jews did not allow any Samaritan to be a Sadducee, to be a Pharisee, to be a scribe, to be a leader in the Sanhedrin. They were completely of another religion, a false religion. And false religions take some truth, take some lies, mix it together, and there you have the false religion. So they're saying you're a Samaritan, and here you are bringing these false falsities to our temple. You are just like them. But now if we recall, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They would not even go into their area would not even go into their land. They considered the whole land of Samaria to be tainted, right? And there's history that shows that if, if by any chance you had to walk through Samaria, the Jews would dust their feet off as they came out of it, not to even bring any of the tainted dirt into the Jewish territory, right? But in John 4, we saw something radically different. We saw Jesus, God the Son incarnate, not go around Samaria to get to where he was going, but he goes directly into Samaria, and he goes to what the Jews would consider the worst of the worst individual there. A woman who has had multiple husbands, left multiple husbands, is living with a man, and is in adultery right then, right there, and he sits beside her at the well. Turn with me over there to recall this again. Look at John chapter 4, verse 39 through 44. And what happens when the Israelite, uh, Jesus Christ himself, goes into Samaria and speaks to her and speaks to the Samaritans? What we find is the best uh, reaction to Jesus of any area, of any city so far in the book of John. Uh, amazing. So look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This, as we've gone through the book of John, you have many people, even the, even the Pharisees earlier here in John chapter 8, claim to believe Jesus 
But then we find out just shortly later, they're not truly believing in Jesus. We saw the, the thousands, maybe 20,000 that, that followed Jesus. He fed them. Many of them supposedly believed in him, called him the prophet, wanted him to be king. Many of them called him rabbi. Then when Jesus begins to teach, they all abandon him. Here, the Samaritans, the people who are supposedly not the people of God, not Israelites, they don't have to have all the supernatural miracles, the signs, the wonders. They just hear his word. They hear his teaching, and they say, we know that you are indeed, look at verse 41, the Savior of the world. So they, they told, this is right belief. They're seeing him for who he truly is. Uh, so far, we've seen the Jews not do this. They are, they are calling him other things, but they're also redefining those things. Uh, we, we're going to call him the prophet, but we're not going to listen to him. Uh, here they see him, they listen to him and say, you're the savior of the world. Uh, so she goes through her town. She proclaims this, that who Jesus is. The whole town is accepting of this, it seems. They call him the savior of the world. Jesus stays with them. You know, you'll recall just previous to this, uh, Jesus would leave the Jews because they were not listening. Jesus knew what was in their heart and they were not truly believing. But he stays with them, and they see him as the savior of the world. Now, how does this eventually get resolved? And this is going to be a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I've made time for this rabbit. It's a planned rabbit trail, all right? But how does this ever get resolved, right? You have this animosity. We are Jews. You are Samaritans. How is it resolved? And it's resolved fully. It's hinted at uh, multiple places, but it comes to this full uh, resolve in Acts chapter 8. If you would turn over to Acts chapter 8. And to get there, of course, we'll have to fast forward our timeline to where Jesus has um, been betrayed. He is, of course, executed. He's hung on the cross. He died. He rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. Uh, Acts, beginning of Acts, he sent the Holy Spirit. 3,000 are saved. 5,000 are added to the, it's just the thousands are growing. Jews, Jews are are saved. Uh, there, when, the, when God gives the Holy Spirit, though, they speak in other languages from where the people have come from. This is also a great clue, along with the Great Commission, that the gospel is supposed to go to not just the Jews, but to everyone. Uh, but they, they seem to not really be listening to that. And then in Acts chapter 8, God makes sure the gospel goes forth outside of Israel. How does he do such a thing? He rises up, per, raises up persecution, and uh, they, they persecute. And we see that Stephen, the deacon Stephen, uh, he along with, with these other men who were appointed, who were great men of God to help the widows, but they were also very well-worded. Uh, Stephen is arrested for proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. He stands before the Sanhedrin, the very people who put Jesus to death for claiming to be the Christ, and he traces through their whole history of how they've rejected the prophets, how they finally rejected the Christ, and how that they now, even though they claim to be children of Abraham, are uncircumcised Gentiles. And what do they do? They gnash their teeth. They are mad, and they pick up stones, and they kill him on the spot. Wow. So then Paul rises up, and uh, he becomes the great persecutor of the church, going home to home, arresting Christians, dragging them out, men and women alike. It does not matter. And so the, many of the church flees. Many of the Christians flee. Disciples stay there. But many of them flee. Where do they go to? Believe it or not, one of the key places they go to is Samaria. They are not ignoring Samaria any longer. And you see another deacon uh, there, that, that those, those early deacons that were appointed there to serve, is now coming out. And he is evangelizing. His name is Philip. Look in Acts chapter 4. We're just going to do 4 through 8. Let's skip to 14 and seven, through 17 just for today's purpose. But look at this. This is the gospel going into Samaria. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So look at this response. So there was much joy in that city. So here you have Philip 
who is going directly into the heart of Samaria. And what does he do? He presents the Christ. This means he tells them who Christ is, what he has done to bring about salvation. What is their response? They pay attention. They listen, and there's great joy in that city. How is that different from just earlier when the deacon uh, Stephen presents the gospel to the Sanhedrin, the who's who of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Again, they gnashed their teeth and they stoned him to death, right? Those are supposedly the people that were right with God. Now, you have the other, uh, Philip, who goes into Samaria, proclaims the gospel, and they listen. They pay attention. Great joy comes to the entire city. And then fast forward, look down at verse 14. Uh, the apostles that are still in Jerusalem, they stay there. They get word of this. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter to them, or sent Peter and John to them. Now, take a pause right there before we continue on. This was a huge, traumatic moment where the apostles in Jerusalem get word that Samarians are listening to the gospel, they have received the gospel, they believed in the gospel, and it's almost like this, this, this can't be. This is, uh, you know, the, the gospel has come to Sanhedrin, they've rejected it, the gospel goes to the Samaritans, and they're, they're listening, they're believing, they've received it. So they send Peter and they send John down there. Look at verse 15. Who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So here's how it is all resolved. In a beautiful way, you have the head of the apostles, not that we're trying to chase this into to popology, all right? But you have the chief of the, chief of the apostles, the head sp spokesman of the apostles, the leader of the apostles, Peter, who comes down. Now, hypothetically, what would have happened if Peter remained in charge there in Jerusalem only, only for the Jews only, and was there when the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost only, but Philip, you know, this, a, a deacon, not one of the apostles, definitely not the chief apostle, goes to Samaria, and they supposedly receive the Holy Spirit. Then the Jews would always be thinking that the Samaritans are somewhat less than still. But instead, the very man, the chief apostle that was there on the day of Pentecost, who proclaimed the message, who preached and thousands were saved, receiving the Holy Spirit, he goes down and Peter and John are there. They pray for them. They receive the Holy Spirit. This is huge. So you have the same thing happening to the Jews is happening to the Samaritans. And here you have unification. Even it is not based on genetics, it is based on belief. You have Peter, who is full-on Israelite, full-on Jewish. You have John as well. They're going into Samaria. They're praying for these who have received the word, and they receive the indwelling of the Spirit just like they did on the day of Pentecost. And here you have salvation, the same Savior, exact salvation, equal salvation, not less than as the Jews, all right? So it is continuing on. So long story short, uh, the Jews there in John uh, chapter 8, they're calling Jesus a Samaritan, the worst thing that he could possibly be called. Jesus is not affected by that at all. He has spent time with the Samaritans. They received him better than the Jews received him, and so it is in the future as well. Uh, the second insult they go to is that Jesus has a demon, and this is not the first time uh, they do this to Jesus. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 3. Look at verse 22 through 30. One of the most uh, prolific or in-depth times where they accuse Jesus of having a demon. So they call him a Samaritan and they call him, uh, claim he has a demon. Sometimes we use the word demon possession. Uh, that. And so, but it's a little bit different worded in the Bible, but here they'll say he had a demon. All right, look at Mark chapter 3, verse 22 through 30. And here you see them early in Jesus' ministry doing the same thing. Uh, verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he, speaking of Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. 
he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and he is divided, and is divided, he cannot stand. But it is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So here we have it again. Jesus is performing signs, miracles, and wonders that are by far not natural. They are clearly supernatural. And he's casting out even demons. And now we have no historical, biblical record of anyone casting out a demon in the Old Testament. Like this is new, uncharted territory. You do have a, one kind of a shadow, which is typical, uh, of David, right? Uh, as Saul has an unclean spirit, and uh, Saul is only soothed when David plays his music. And you have David there, who is, again, a, a foreshadowing of the ultimate king of Israel, Jesus Christ. But that's it. So what are they going to do? Jesus is casting out demons. Who can do such a thing? This has not been done. This is uncharted territory. Well, only God can. Then, no, we got, I got an idea. Maybe it's Satan himself who is casting out himself. It's that, let's go with that theory, right? That's much better. So that's what they end up going with. Even though Jesus' teaching is pure truth, even though his life is, is exemplary, there is no sin in him, uh, he is casting out demons. They say you're actually doing these because you are possessed by the prince of demons, Beelzebul. So what is the, Jesus' response? This is the unpardonable sin. And there's much debate on what the unpardonable sin is, but this is one, one thing that's clear from Mark chapter 3, verse 22, verse 30, is that Jesus is in front of them, and he is casting out demons directly in front of him, them. This is an a absolute clear sign from God. They see Jesus doing this through the power of the Holy Spirit, and instead of seeing the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit, they see, see it as the the demonic spirit. And this is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit where they call what is absolute holy, absolute sinful. They call it Beelzebul. So this continues on. And uh, in John chapter 8, they're doing the same thing. All right. And then now turn with me back to John chapter 8, verse 49. And let's look at this. And by the way, in John chapter 8, Jesus is not just cast out a demon and they're doing this because he's cast out demons. They're doing it because of his teaching. That's why they're doing this at this point. Look at verse 49 in John chapter 8. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Now, a lot of this is repeated through John 7 and John chapter 8 so far, so I'm not going to get into great detail. But we see that all that Jesus is doing he is honoring his Father. He is obeying his Father. He is glorifying the Father. All right? So if he is doing everything in perfect obedience to the Father, they should be honoring him. There's nothing, no reason to dishonor him. Uh, the signs, the miracles, the wonders, everything is there. God has validated him, has listened to him. He is my spokesman. He is the one I have sent. I have given you proof after proof after proof. Just listen to him, but they will not honor him. Look at verse 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Uh, we've noted before at this state of Jesus' uh, humility, he has foregone the glory of God and as, as, as God in the flesh, and he is there to bring glory to God the Father. He acknowledges here that that is his goal, that is his purpose. He is not trying to gain glory of him in himself. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, those in these high positions... They were there self-serving, self-glorification, and wanted all the glory for themselves. Uh, Jesus in verse 50 notes that he, speaking of God, is going to be the ultimate judge. 
This is something else that goes cyclically throughout the book of John that the Pharisees and Sadducees, they have put themselves up as the judges, the ultimate standards, the ultimate judges of what is right, what is wrong. And Jesus says, no, no, no. God is going to be the ultimate and final judge. Look at verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Wow. So this is what he tells the Pharisees. Truly, truly. And again, we note when he says truly, truly, it's all eyes, all attention. Listen to this. All of Jesus' words are true. It's just a way to bring full attention to this. Truly, truly. Listen close. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So what does it mean that to not see death? What does it mean to keep Jesus' word, right? It means to, to believe, to continue believing. This is very similar. Look back up at verse 31 in John chapter 8. After the Pharisees, some of them supposedly believed in him. Look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And then we saw, as Jesus continues to teach, that they are not abiding in his teaching at all. They are rejecting his teaching, which reveals they are not his true disciples. This is very similar to John chapter 8, verse 51, where Jesus says, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. There is eternal reward for those who have faith in Christ, and eternal punishment for those that do not. And we can pick a lot of verses to look at, but just some that are quite similar to what we're reading right here. John 8, verse 24, that we covered a few weeks back. Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is huge. Every person is either going to die with all of their sins and face the ultimate judge who knows every sin you have ever committed and never forgotten one, or you will die with zero of your sins. Which one of those do you want? Hmm, I'm going to choose a zero, right? So that's what Jesus is offering. He says, you, it says I told you that you will die in your sins, with your sins, unless you believe that I am he. And even then, we get that, we're going to get to that in a moment, that I am statement there. You must believe and who Jesus claimed to be. If you redefine Jesus, you're dying in your sins. You can't make up your own Jesus, like the Mormons, like Jehovah Witnesses, uh, like even the Muslims, make up their own version of Jesus. But anyway, like pop, cult, pop culture Christianity often does these days. People just make up their own Jesus and believe in that one to take away their sins. We must believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He is God in the flesh. Uh, John 3.36, look at this one. Turn over there with me, if you would, just real fast. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Very similar. Uh, here you have obeying the Son. Uh, you, uh, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Uh, but God's wrath remains on him. So you have the wrath of God. The person is dying in their sin. They're not listening to the Son. They're not abiding the, uh, in the Son's word. So God's wrath remains on him. Ephesians chapter 2, we looked at many times. We are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature children of wrath. We are born sinners. We live in sin. We actively sin. How is that ever taken away? Only by God making us alive, by the power of the Holy Spirit, birthing us again, regeneration, are we made alive. So uh, faith comes with that. Faith and repentance, God grants that salvation. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Uh, look at John 5, 24. Just for one last cross-reference, turn forward a couple of pages. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Oof. So all these are very similar passages to what we're looking at up here in John chapter 8, verse 51. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. 
So what does all this mean for a Christian? Does it mean that you're, you will not physically die? Unfortunately, that is not what that means right now, right? Every person will face death. Unless Christ comes back before then, uh, we know that our bodies will stop working one day. But yet, you read these passages, like we just read, you have eternal life because you believed in Jesus. You will not come into judgment. You've passed from death to life. So what does that mean for us as believers? It's a wonderful peace that we should actually live this temporary life in. We will die. Our bodies will stop working, but we, we will never stop existing. We will immediately go to the presence of Jesus Christ. Paul had much comfort in that. To be absent from the body, he said, was to be present with Christ. And you recall all that he, he, Paul went through in his life and the troubles and imprisonments and beatings, etc., etc. And what did he long to do? He longed to be with Christ, but he knew he had much work here, so he continued to work until God took him. But we have that blessed assurance. We know that the moment the body stops working, we will be in the presence of God. Our body will be under the ground or somewhere here on earth, but one day we will have glorified bodies as well. So Jesus is saying, we have no fear of this happening to us because we have eternal life. Uh, we've, we've looked at multiple passages where we have the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a guarantee, right, from God of our inheritance that is to come. So we have this. We're sure of this. We don't live in fear of what's going to happen after death. We are fully comforted. As Jesus comforted his disciples before he left, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, and I will come for you. You will be with me, and we have that same assurance as well. So this is what he is telling the Pharisees back in verse 51. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So this is a huge statement. Uh, what do the Pharisees do about this? They try to compare him to every other high-up religious person in the history of the world, primarily the key prophets. Look at verse 52 through 53. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. It's probably an exclamation point there in your translation. Now they know. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? So this is how they come against him. They're like, you must have a demon because you're saying that you are greater than all the prophets, even father Abraham. And the end of verse 53, who do you make yourself out to be? And this is a huge claim. He is claiming if they keep his word, they will not die. And if you recall, which they should have during this Feast of Tabernacles, it's a long journey, but you, uh, go back to Leviticus 26, verse 3. Leviticus 26, verse 3. If you, and this is done in multiple places uh, where we see such a thing. But you have... You have God telling the Israelites what will happen if they keep his word. And then if they do not keep his word, what will happen to them? In Leviticus 26, verse 3, uh, look what God says. This is, this is the Lord speaking. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you, and here comes this great list of blessings that we're not going to go into, okay? But here you have, so who's, who, the point of this is, is you don't have Abraham saying such a thing. If you obey me, you will live. But you do have God saying this. So just in the previous verse there, back in John, Jesus says, if you keep my word, you will not see death. So, so this, is, this is, again, you have the old covenant. You have the Lord saying, if you are obedient, all these blessings come, keep my word. And then you have Jesus, the new covenant maker, who is saying the same thing, but greater. He is saying, if you keep my word, and notice he doesn't say what it's going to say over here in Leviticus, you're going to have lots of rain, your yield's going to increase, you're going to have a great grape harvest, lots of big grapes are going to be produced, all right, your land is going to be. No, he's saying you have eternal life. 
and you see that it's escalated. It's gone up. You have the new covenant maker who says, obey me, keep my word, and you will not taste death. So the point of this, when the Pharisees say, who are you making yourself out to be? Who is the only other person in biblical history who says something similar to this? Keep my word, and these great blessings are going to supernaturally come. It's God. And so here you see that Jesus, is already, he's been doing this over and over. It's been hinted at much. I am God. I'm telling you, keep my word because I am the one who has power over life and death and judgment and eternal placement. Keep my word, and the reward is eternal life. So just a little hint there in Leviticus. Turn back to John chapter 8 now. John chapter 8. Look down at verse 54. <clears throat> Uh, verse 54 and 55, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Now again, this is fascinating. Verse 54 through 55, you have supposedly the most knowledgeable people of the word of God, talking to Jesus. But what does Jesus tell them? You do not know him. You don't know him. I know him. If I, didn't, if I said I didn't, I would be a liar like you. So again, Jesus is going back to your father is the Satan. Your father is the father of lies. He was a liar in the beginning. You are a liar. You don't even know him. And yet they are the ones representing God to the people. But they're leading them astray. Remember Jesus says the blind leading the blind, right? This is who they are. Um, look at John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. So that's what he told them that they were. So here you have them falsely representing God to the people. Uh, look at verse 56. Jesus says, your father Abraham, speaking of Abraham, they want to mention him all the time. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, to a degree, you can pick up some of this truth from like a Genesis 17, verse 17 there, about the promises coming to Abraham, about all the nations being blessed one day by his offspring. And you can see, see where they could, this Jesus could have been pointing to that. But also it seems like, and I lean towards this, that Jesus is, is giving them some extra information here, like intimate details, like he knows Abraham, and he knew, and he knows that Abraham looks forward to this day that he has now come. And that seems to be explained quite well, because we look at verse 57, and what do they say? So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? So they knew the scriptures, they knew Genesis, they knew that there was at least a hint of, G of Abraham looking forward to the promises being fulfilled, but yet they're accusing him of being way too young to know who Abraham is. Abraham had been dead for over 2,000 years. Uh, is Jesus 2,050 years old at this time? You know, No, that's not the case. So they're, they're, but they are saying, you're acting like you know the thoughts of Abraham. Who knows the thoughts of Abraham? God, all right? And that's what they're, they're getting at. Who, are you, who do you make yourself out to be? The prophets died, but you say keep your word and, and we will not die. And uh, you're, you said Abraham looked forward to your day. And this was the key figure of the Old Testament. They claimed to be connected to that they, he looked forward to Jesus coming, the Christ, the Messiah. But yet these people who claim to be of his offspring reject him fully and want to kill him. So the, are they going to, to say that Jesus is claiming to be old and get really mad? We find that something else is going to happen. Jesus has been very clear on who they are. They are of their father, the devil. They are not of Abraham. They are not of God, even though they're genetically connected, all right? They are not of Abraham. They're not of God. And now he's about to have this mic drop moment where he tells them exactly who he is. Look at verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
This is an awesome passage. If you have not memorized it, set it to memory. It's a great passage to look at, to focus on. And it's just this great, awesome, concentrated moment. Truly, truly, again, this is emphatic. Look here, pay attention, listen closely. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What is he claiming? Is he claiming to be really old? That's not the case. He's claiming something far greater than that. And we've looked at this multiple times, but I don't want anyone to miss this point. So turn with me over to Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 14. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 14. We find that, yes, uh, to a degree, you could say, Jesus is claiming to be very old, but he's claiming to be something far greater than that, far greater than that. Next is 3, verse 13 through 14. You have the burning bush. We've gone over this many times, so forgive me if I go too fast. Uh, and, and, and Moses is wanting to tell the people who it is that is sending him, and this is the response. Verse 13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So this, uh, this is the I am statement, which speaks volumes. There's so much to this. Uh, we, it speaks of God's, God is, is, is not created. He has always been. He always will be. That word is the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y, that he has always been, always will be. He is the only one that is that. He is God. He is uncreated. If you are asking yourself who created God, no one created God. He has always been, always will be. So he is the great I am. He is unchanging. He is immutable. He is, is who he always has been and always will be. All right, so he is, I am. So this is the name that Moses was to go, supposed to go back to Israel. So here's the signs God gave me. Here's the supernatural signs. Uh, who is this? What is his name? I am. And here in John chapter 8, you have Jesus saying, Before Abraham was, I am. And he brings this over super strong, super clear, he stops it there, and what is the response of the Pharisees? They pick up rocks to kill him because they fully understand what he is saying. Look at verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, why were they going to stone him? There was no stoning punishment for people who wrongly lied about their age, all right? So some people will look at this and they, oh, they were, they were mad because he was saying that he was older than he was. That's, that's not a law anywhere in the Old Testament, okay? If you lied about your age a little or a lot, stoning was not the punishment of it. What was uh, stoning punishable for? Blasphemy. And in Leviticus 24, 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So they knew uh, when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, he takes on that name of God and says it of himself, I am. So it's not just saying before Abraham was, already existed to a degree, but beyond that, right? He's saying, I am the creator. I am God in the flesh that is speaking to you now. They hate it so much, they immediately pick up stones to kill him on the spot. But as usual, when they, it is not Jesus' time to die, he eludes them and he escapes them. And lastly, at the end of verse 59, you see, he went out of the temple. Now, most likely, there's something symbolic that is happening here kind of like in the Old Testament, the Ichabod scene where, the, where God's glory departs the tabernacle, that something like that is happening here that John is hinting at, that Jesus is fully, he's gone over. It's chapter 7, chapter 8, teaching them who he is over and over and over. He has finally revealed, I 
am. And they fully reject him. And what does he do? He leaves the temple for good. He leaves it and goes the other direction. Now, the Jewish leaders have officially weighed in and concluded that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is a Samaritan, demon-possessed, blasphemer who deserves death. Jesus, the true temple of God, Jesus in the flesh, leaves the earthly temple, rejected by those who claim to represent God, and the scene ends with the supposed tabernacle rejecting the true tabernacle, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made it clear that Jesus is truly who he claimed to be, that he is the great I am, and that by believing in him, we can have forgiveness of sins. We can know that we are not of Satan. We can know that we are not a child of wrath, that through Jesus Christ and through faith in him, we are children of Abraham and that we are your children. And it is not a genetic link that we are looking for or relying on someone else's faith, uh, grandparents or fathers or mother's faith, but it is our faith that you have given us. We thank you that you've given us belief. You've given us repentance of sin. You've given us salvation. You've made us alive. And God, we pray for anyone now who might be here or be listening. If they have not looked to Jesus to abide in him, to keep his word, to obey him, to look to the Christ who is the Son of God, who came to live, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to pay the price for our sins. May they look to him today for their salvation and not rely on themselves like the Pharisees did. May they not rely on their good works because there are none that can save us, but help us to rely on Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless one who was absolutely righteous. And may we look to him for our salvation, Lord. If there's anyone today, Lord, convict them of their sin. May they see the holiness they need to face you in judgment is way beyond anything they can do themselves. It can only be found in the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.